welcome to this fourth episode of our Construction Law Masters podcast series. Today I'm joined by Chantil Amy Dorius, QC, who's the head of Acting Chambers, one of the leading technology and construction engineering sets of Barristers Chambers in London. As well as one of the most highly regarded construction silks of a generation, Chantal Amy was also chair of the Bar Council of England and Wales, the representative body of Barristers' profession. She also has a wide-ranging practice in domestic and international commercial dispute resolution, with particular emphasis on energy and natural resources, construction, engineering, infrastructure projects, joint ventures, professional negligence, shipbuilding, and IT and telecommunications projects. So Chantal Amy, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. Pleasure. So I think it almost goes without saying, but I think the starting point must be how have you and your colleagues been faring over the last five months? Five months? When I hear you mention that time period, it sort of <laughs> really brings it home. It's hard to believe it's been five months since we all respectively, uh, effectively went into lockdown. I recall taking the decision to close the building, you know, Atkin Chambers, and um, it's not something you ever think you're going to have to do. But it's been an interesting period. I think in the early days, obviously, like other businesses and uh, organizations, we were uh, extremely concerned. It was a tough time not knowing how it was going to play out. And, you know, we went through, as I'm sure any other organization did, the various permutations in terms of impact on work. Professionally, the most immediate impact was predictably the loss of hearings. And obviously, being, being barristers and, and primarily advocates, um, most of our diaries, uh, time is taken up either with hearings or prep for hearings. And so that was obviously in the immediate aftermath of that lockdown decision, uh, a challenge. But in fact, we've been pretty fortunate. I think as, you know, over this time period of, as you say, of about five months, in fact, from a professional perspective, the work that has been deferred, by which I mean obviously the court or arbitration hearings that would have happened, has been replaced with other work, with um, obviously clients who are also dealing with the consequences of COVID and who are looking for advice. So professionally, from a, I suppose, financial perspective, we've so far been, you know, I would say relatively fortunate, but there are challenges around working in that climate. We were lucky again, we invested in a new telecom system about a year ago, probably not with any foresight in terms of where we have ended up but simply as something that was necessary at the time. And I think recognizing already then the increasing shift towards the challenges or the opportunities promote, propose, brought about through telecommunications, virtual hearings, et cetera. And so we were lucky that we had a system in place that meant that when we shut the building down, the physical building, we were able to move pretty much straight into, within about 48 hours, a fully functioning remote building or remote chambers. Um, and that's made a huge difference, I think, to our ability to work for our clients and provide the sort of services that, that they had expected and were expecting. Yeah, absolutely. So if I could just move on, perhaps, to we talked a bit about the pressures of COVID in terms of people having to work at home and dealing with childcare, children not being at school and what have you. There's obviously been a lot of talk about mental health in the legal profession. How do you think the bar has been coping with that overall? You know, is there more to be done or what are your views on that? Just from our perspective as a firm, for example, it's become a very important issue and we're put a lot of, lot of support in place for people who uh, may be struggling at this time. I think it's undoubtedly an important issue. And I think before you come on to deal with COVID, just looking at the professions, both the bar and solicitors, pretty high pressured. I mean, certainly from the bar's perspective, the very things that make the job fun and rewarding are ones that lead to more stress. You know, it's the challenge, the performance, the pressure, which is what makes it interesting. And all of that generates stress. And one of the important issues, I think, is learning in yourself to recognize that, taking care of yourself. And certainly when I started, you know, back in the day, no one talked about that. And I think one of the big changes has been really over the last sort of I'd say five six seven years that people have started to talk about it and I think the profession has put a number of steps in place I mean, back in um, 2016 when I was chair of the bar we launched a, a well-being portal and it's a, a pretty impressive piece which included uh, a lot of information around um, practical tips support contact as well as 
actual stories from individuals who had had their own um, struggles at various stages in their profession. And I think recognizing those challenges and being able to speak about them in a sense is offering leadership to others so that people, I think particularly as lawyers, similar perhaps to doctors and one or two other professions where there are invariably you know, regulatory challenges around admitting some of the difficulties to do with stress, certainly, and mental health if you end up in, um, in certain situations. So I think that's made it harder for us to deal with it, but I think we're, we're starting to come full circle and grapple with it. Certainly as the chambers, and I think in the context of COVID, you know, we've been very aware of the fact that having closed the building, we've all been working from home. And although we probably before all of this had more individuals who from time to time would choose to work from home. You know, if I'm prepping a big case, I might take my files home and sit here for a few weeks. But that's rather different choosing to do that than uh, knowing that you have to do it. And I think the fear has been the, you know, the emphasis in a little way on the increased isolation of individual members. And everyone's in a different situation with different challenges. Uh, And so we've made a real effort to provide the sort of support you were mentioning making sure that we regularly reach out, that we were organizing sort of virtual get-togethers. Not perhaps the real thing, but again, it's interesting, rather like when we were talking about virtual hearings, you know, actually a virtual get-together can be rather more fun. Is that the appropriate word? Than If you'd asked me five months ago, I probably would have recognized. And although we're now starting to come back into the building and people, I think, generally are very happy about that, we have made use of the virtual facilities that we had in the building. And so I think in the short answer to the longer sort of foreplay in a sense is as a profession, as a chamber, we need to be better at picking up the signs, reaching out um, and making sure that we have support systems in place because it's not going to go away, the challenge that our job brings. And if anything, some of the things we've been talking about, the increased virtual approach, certainly the increased international element that we've seen in our practice over the last 10 years, All of those things, I think, actually just increase the challenges, A, around the pressure that's applied to the individual, and B, the harder it is to spot the challenges, because if we're all working in different places, you don't have that water cooler conversation where maybe I notice that Fred is looking a bit tired and a bit more stressed and I have a chance to talk to him. So it's making up, you know, it's making up for those things which we've lost a little bit as well, I think. Perhaps we could move on now to to your practice in particular. The way it's described on the website is, uh, I have to say, extraordinarily broad. I'm extremely impressed with that, not only in terms of the sectors that you work on, which obviously involves construction engineering, but also IT, telecommunications, uh, joint ventures, but also the geographies, Middle East, Europe, Central, East Asia, Latin America. Just in terms of what you've worked on over the course of your career, have you noticed your, your practice change in terms of sectors and geographies, or, or, or have you always had this very international, diverse practice? No, I think it's definitely changed. I think that's partly, if I can put it this way, as my career has progressed and I, I sort of gained in seniority, and partly to do with the reflection of the sort of work that Chambers has done. So I'd say back in the day when I started out, which is you know early 1990s, we and I did a lot more domestic work, really big infrastructure, with some international work, not, to be frank, a huge amount at the junior end. You know, it was probably the silks who were doing it, but the bulk of our work was domestic. And where it was international, it probably came, and certainly the work I was involved in as a really young junior, predominantly from places like Hong Kong, Jersey, countries with strong connections with England. And it was more, if I can put it this way, construction engineering focused. Most of our work still has a construction engineering angle, but I'd say that it's become a much wider range of projects, work, legal questions that we're involved in. And so I'd say that the shift has really been, certainly for myself over that time period, an increasingly international practice, starting obviously again building on countries like, um, or regions like Hong Kong, but then moving out towards Asia, the Middle East, South America, latterly Africa. And that really reflects the industry more broadly. It reflects where really big infrastructure, energy projects are taking place. And it reflects the businesses who are often involved in those, 
you know, the top 20 construction firms globally are all based outside of the UK. And so that, I think, has driven a lot of the work that, that certainly that I've done and we've done. And I think in terms of the breadth of that work, I think some of that is, again, to do with seniority, but a lot of it is to do with the time frame we're talking about. Uh, insofar as, you know, when I look at my practice today, some of it is very, if I can put it this way, traditional big construction engineering projects might be a, you know, a power plant or a road. But equally, you're seeing, or at least I'm seeing, an increasing uh, amount on the energy side, commercial, what I would call the commercial disputes, but related to energy or, or large infrastructure disputes, where I think clients are becoming more aware of what the bar has to offer and, in essence, where the skills that, you know, that specialist advocates are selling, in essence, or offer their clients, are the ability to digest a large amount of complex information, to identify what aspects matter, to, see, to find a strategy through that, uh, and to uh, ascertain and to find a way of presenting that in a way that's going to be favorable to the given tribunal. And so I think those skills have, have lended themselves um, to, to a sort of a wider spread of work than probably you know, would have been possible 20 years ago. And I think that's, that's partly because the market has grown so much, really. You know, when you're looking at some of these jurisdictions, I mean, if you look at some of the projects in the Gulf, they're absolutely massive in terms of the finance that's been invested in them, in terms of the physical scale, you know, places where you might see whole cities being built together with the infrastructure around that and where you have numerous contractors from different jurisdictions. And so, you, you, you know, you have, I suppose, the, um, from, a, from a dispute lawyer's perspective, um, a, a much greater scope for disputes um, in many cases, they're much more challenging and they're certainly um, higher value. And so that then brings um, a number of issues around how you fight those cases. Um, so I would say in terms of the change, going back to the question you asked me, um, I've definitely seen a change. I'd say on the domestic front, um, one of the big uh, sort of shifts for us, two big shifts I'd probably point out that I've noticed. One is obviously in that time frame, um, the increasing use of ADR, really sophisticated ADR, um, which has taken away a lot of the, the actual cases that tend to fight in court. You know, clients are more able, um, usually with the input of lawyers, but are more able at an earlier stage often to find their way through a dispute um, with, you know, with the benefit um, of often a, a mix of ADR. It's not usually one thing fits all, but... Um, so that's made a difference for us and, and you know, probably fits in with more of our work being international now. On the other hand, you know, on the domestic side, um, there's definitely a strong domestic basis coming out of some of the big infrastructure projects this country is still invested in. Um, and just right now, um, you know, seeing some of those PFI um, contracts come to an end is certainly generating disputes. Um, which are different in nature from, you know, what I would have been involved in sort of 20 years ago, just because of the, the sort of complexity of the financial arrangements that sit behind them, the complexity of the contracts. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's shifted quite a bit, but at the, at the core, we're looking, you know, I've, I've continued to really focus on large, complex disputes, and obviously the cases are a lot bigger now than they were uh, back in the day. Yeah, that's, I mean, everything you've said is, is consistent with what we've experienced, at, you know, as a, as, a, as a law firm and as a practice. Um, increasing international work. And then just, just pausing on that, I think international law firms have obviously always been involved in international work uh, by, by definition. But, the, but I think the English Bar have, have done a fantastic job of... Um, of getting involved in cases which wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't necessarily have a link to England for example what I'm really saying is the quality of the, the English bar particularly the construction engineering sector is basically is probably the, the, the root cause of that success uh, people recognize the quality the expertise clients law firms I think it's remarkable 
and just also mentioning the the split between domestic and international work at this particular point in time because obviously i appreciate it changes what percentage would you say your practice is at the moment well i'd say yeah, right at this yeah i mean it shifts and it changes and it you know it depends if you're looking at as um, typical lawyers answer doesn't it? it depends if you're looking at time taken money earned number of cases but broadly speaking i would say that my practice is probably about 60 70 percent international and and that does shift uh, very much so i mean i may have a given year where it's you know 80 percent domestic if i'm working on a really big project that fights equally i've had the flip the other way but it, it, it's a constant and it it is um i suppose what, what you were saying earlier and it, you know for, for me it's very good to hear that from it's good to hear someone who isn't a barrister recognizing this um i suppose the quality of the english bar and i think in a way i think the international work um has allowed the the english bar perhaps um you know to really hone some of those skills because when you think of the the advocacy you know if you go back 20 years and the question you were asking me earlier you know um in terms of shifts and changes um i think people had various stereotypes in their mind about what the english bar might be and i think one of the really interesting Really, really interesting aspects about the profession is how amazingly flexible it is. <laughs> so, um, you know, to transport the um, the advocacy and the um, strategic thinking from what what was really a, a much more predominantly court-based practice. Um, and I'm not talking about particularly about myself here, but the English bar, more generally the commercial bar, construction bar, into one where you know the international work is at least as important as. Um, for some people more, for some people less, but at least as important as the domestic work. And in the context of international tribunals, where, as you say, the governing law may not be English, the tribunal may not be English, the parties may not be, um, but where, in essence, the bar is offering that expertise, but where it's actually adapted those skills, because the skills do play a little differently. Um, and so, you know, cross-examination in the context of an international arbitration between you know, to, to um, parties from a, from a different part of the globe is going to be different. And I think that the bar, in a sense, has taken that challenge on with gusto. Um, it's, I must say, it's one of the things I really enjoy about it. I really enjoy the fact that it is so different. And I, I enjoy the mix. I mean, for me, it's as important to keep the domestic part of my practice going as the international, because I think that the, the combination of both actually makes you better as an advocate. Yeah, I mean, just picking up on your point about different styles, I think that is, that's very important in the international context. If you've got a tribunal with three of your colleagues on the, you know, on the panel, yeah, um, perhaps you can adopt, um, and, and maybe they'd appreciate a more high court style of advocacy. But if tribunal who are not familiar with, you know, that, um, relatively uh strict and precise way of cross-examining someone um and some people i mean this is coming from clients who you've suffered at the hands of a very well prepared very experienced um qc um they feel quite um intimidated by it because it's so it, you know forensically it's it's extremely yeah. challenging for them you know, they've got to be precise about the answers they give, uh, uh, won't betide them if they lie about thing or, or, or forget something, um, you know, it, it, they, find that, they find that quite intimidating. Um, some tribunals who aren't familiar with that style or, 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 or haven't experienced that style, you know, you, sometimes it, it, it may not work quite as well. Um, I, I don't know how you feel about about that. I mean, you, in terms of no, style, I, I, whether you have to, I, how far do you have to go? How far do you have to change your style? Or maybe your style is works well because it's you're being particularly I, aggressive, or it's always been well, no, effective, I, but not not too aggressive. I think that that's quite an interesting question. What a person's style is. I mean, you have to find your own style. But I think if you're a good advocate, you will adapt that style. As I was saying earlier, to suit. The situation you're in there's no doubt about that in my mind i mean the really good advocates don't just stand up and argue a case or um, cross-examine you, you have to have an awareness 
even, I think, if you're a good advocate, even if you're in the same court every day, but it's going to be a different case. It's going to be a different client. It's going to be a different witness. And that's actually what makes advocacy fun. It's forming those assessments, kind of judging, judging that situation and figuring out how to approach it. And I think you're right in, in the international context. Uh, if you're you know, appearing in front of a three-member tribunal or from you know, a different region in the world, you need to think about what their cultural sensitivities are. Yes, absolutely. Before we move on, can I just ask one more question? I mean, we've talked about how your practice has developed over the last 20 years or so, um, but how do, you, how do you see things changing? Can you, have you got any views about how things might change over the next decade in terms of practice? I mean, for example, are you going to see, do you expect to see more international work overall than you see now, um, or do you expect things to stay broadly the same? Um, um, I mean, that, that, I, think, I think a lot, a lot of it will be driven by what the clients are doing, basically, uh, where they're investing, what type of technology they're investing in, what sort of projects they're, they're, they're being involved in. Completely. I mean, it, it is client-driven, isn't it? I think international work is going to stay important. I think we will, my own suspicion is that I and we will see a, you know, a greater shift towards the international work. Although if the government makes you know, good on its commitments in terms of increased investment in infrastructure, we may see you know, more work domestically. But the international market, will, I think, will stay. It will probably shift in terms of regions. I mean, we've had a lot of work, um, both you know, in Chambers and personally, from sort of Dubai, Qatar, UAE more generally. Um, so much has happened there over the last 10 years. I, you know, I suspect that it's going to be difficult to keep building at, um, at that sort of rate. But you look at countries like Saudi Arabia, where um, certainly we're seeing a large amount of construction, infrastructure, and disputes coming out of that. Um, so I think, I think the international work will stay, but we will see shifts, as always, uh, between regions. Another one which will be interesting to watch is um, what impact developments in Hong Kong may have uh, on the um, sort of ongoing battle between Hong Kong and Singapore uh, for supremacy in that uh, Asian market. Um, so I think that those are some of the, the um, regional issues. Uh, in terms of type of work, I think we will see a growth in um, some of the renewable work. We've already um, probably seen that over the you know the last. Um, few years, but I think that we will see, um, you know, if you're looking at, for instance, waste to energy, waste treatment projects, um, I've certainly seen more of those, I would say, in the last five years than, than prior to that. And so I think those new technologies will um, bring with them disputes, unfortunately. I mean, that that is, um, in a sense, the price of being a pioneer. Um, invariably, um, there will be issues, challenges. And some of those, I think, will, will generate work for us. I, I guess more broadly, one of the interesting questions domestically is what happens now that these PFI contracts, the first sort of generation, um, are coming to an end. How many, you know, what will the contracting authorities do? Are they geared up for it? How will they manage these assets going forward? Will they renew? How will they fund it? And I think that that, again, may bring with it um, potential for work over the next 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think we're going to see geography shift a little bit um, in terms of where major disputes go in the Middle East. I agree. Um, Saudi seems to be the, the one that's likely to continue to invest heavily in, in construction and infrastructure, um, perhaps less in the smaller Emirates where they might reach sort of close to peak, peak development, uh, at least at the moment. Um, I think what's really interesting is places like Africa and Latin America, um, yeah. where the prospect for much more construction work, infrastructure work, obviously the need for it is very, very high. What would you say is the most significant and interesting construction cases or developments over the last decade? Yeah, I think that's that's um, quite a tricky question um, because one of the um, developments I would say of the last probably 10, 15 years, uh, has been a shift certainly domestically where so much of it plays out um, in ADR. 
Uh, and so in terms of really significant appellate cases going through to the courts, there is definitely less than, say, 25 years ago. Um, and, um, and, you know, what we've just been discussing with the heavy international aspect and how much of that is, is in arbitration, again, confidential. So I think one of, actually, one of the challenges um, which your question flags, to my mind, is that um, we're not seeing, uh, I think it's, I don't think it's a, I don't think there's much one can do about it. I think it's an inevitability in a sense as a result of the, the shift in dispute resolution that we've been discussing. But we're seeing, I think, a lack of sufficient number of cases flowing through the courts at a sufficiently um, high level to really generate uh, the developments that we might have seen, say, 15, 20 years ago. And so the two that, thinking about sort of two cases that I would choose, neither of them are actually construction cases, but both of them play out in the construction area. Um, they're both important. And I think that's an interesting aspect of the way practice has developed, that we will see, um, as less cases go on appeal, we will see um, appellate cases in in other areas having really quite broad ramifications and so the two I was thinking about is is uh, rock advertising you know the Supreme Court case from 2018 com completely out of construction although you might say it's sort of building it's to do the license agreement and rent arrears um, that I thought was um, a good example of a case that has definitely made a difference um, I think it's interesting because it's a good example of appellate courts disagreeing, you know, the Court of Appeal taking one view, Supreme Court taking a completely different view, a very pragmatic decision in enforcing uh, the no oral variation clause, um, and a decision which I think gives, um, has real ramifications in, in our field of work, uh, both, if I can put it this way, directly and, and indirectly. Um, I've certainly had a number of cases where I've been asked to advise on, on consequences of um, the case and not all necessarily ones that would immediately be obvious, but um, I was arguing a case last year in the commercial court, performance bond arising out of a construction project, and we were looking at a, a non-waiver provision um, and uh, managed, you know, persuaded the court in the context of ROC that actually when you're looking at a, a non-waiver provision, um, the, what was necessary was not just to show a waiver, but a waiver of the non-waiver clause. <laughs> um, and so you, you, know, you can start to see that, it, that the case, which in many ways is, is on the periphery of our, of our area of work, actually in terms um, of the decision um, and particularly construction projects, which are often um, sometimes in some regions have a degree of informality. You know, the, the, it's not that unusual to have agreements that aren't recorded in writing or don't comply with the contractual requirements for agreements or, or varied work one step further, not just varying the contract, but varying the work. How far does rock advertising go? So I think that's really interesting and we'll, I think we'll see more of it. And then the second case is probably, uh, probably an obvious one, which is the MacDessy case. Uh, on LDs, LADs, and uh, again, not nothing to do with our area of work at all, um, but uh, really interesting and one that I think um, will have ramifications. Less clear exactly what those ramifications are, and I think in contrast to, to rock advertising, um, it's introduced a, a lack of clarity. I mean, I think the industry um, and the jurisprudence around uh, liquidated damages was um, if I can put it this way, relatively settled uh, or was certainly treated that way. Um, but I think the, uh, the new test um, insofar as um, if you look, if you know, you look at the speech of the Lord Hodge and Lord Nance, it's quite interesting to see how that plays out in the construction industry where obviously almost every single contract has an LAD provision. Though. Absolutely. I mean, what, what is interesting is if you go through Chitty, um, when you're, you know, doing your research, yeah. um, obviously being a general commercial contractual textbook, um, not focusing on construction at all, but most, a, a, a significant number of the major cases concerning contract law, um, traditionally or historically, I should say, 
came out of the construction industry because it's a litigious sector, um, contracts, uh, you know, contractual issues, legal issues arose all the time. So I think in a way it's a shame, isn't it? Because we're not getting these issues resolved as quickly as we might. Um, these, these, these legal questions which haven't been fully resolved. Um, on that, is there any issue which you feel is particularly ripe for for determination by the courts? Well, I guess the obvious answer to that, and it isn't really a legal issue, but um, would be standard form contracts, um, whether it's NEC or FIDIC. Um, and what you know, I, when, when you think of the conversation we've just had, lack of big significant construction cases that really develop the law in the way that we had before. I mean, they are happening, but they're in arbitration. All the debates are happening in adjudication. And so they're obviously not developing the law in, in the sense that we're talking about. And one of the issues that falls out of that is, I think, the, the real paucity of guidance around standard form contracts. And with that, then, um, comes the sort of complication, particularly in the international arena, um, as regards FIDIC, I think domestically as regards the NEC, that you have parties and an industry that occasionally will take a view or will approach something um, with a particular view, but where in fact there are no, you know, there's no um, jurisprudence really to at least specifically uh, to address that. And so I think that that if you if you're asking me where would you know legal guidance assist the industry in terms of risk management, I think it would be. Uh, more cases flowing through to the court um, that decides the standard form issues. Because there is no, there hasn't been much treatment of, say, say the FIDIC form. I mean, there have been, um, there have been some cases, of course, we we know about those, but there aren't that many. No. And I think one of the interesting things in being an international lawyer is very often I'll get asked by a client, well, you know, FIDIC is some special thing. Um, and can you tell me what what the judges or the courts say about this particular provision or that particular provision? And you say, well, um, I'm afraid there haven't been any cases on that. So, or we have to. We we we've got one case which touched on it um, and didn't really didn't really tell us very much. And more judicial guidance on NEC three in particular would I think be been quite useful to clients. But we've we've seen very few cases about NEC three. So. Um, as you say, we're slightly in the dark about about certain issues and how certain aspects of those contracts would be treated by a judge or by a tribunal. We can only go on what we've personally experienced. So I think that's that's a very good point. I think we've touched on it slightly at the very beginning. Certainly our experience is that obviously we're giving advice on force measure, change of law provisions. Um, I think most law firms have had to do that. Uh, and I and I'm assuming that the bar has had a similar experience um, interpreting contracts, what they mean. I assume on particularly tricky questions. What is your view about where this all goes, though, in terms of disputes? I mean, my view, personal view, is that we won't see major disputes just about COVID, but what we will see is uh, as a result of the financial economic impacts of COVID on the global economy will result in projects running into distress, um, contractors getting into difficulties, uh, payment issues, and that will generate more disputes. And as part of those disputes, which are indirectly caused by COVID, you will have direct COVID-related claims as part of them, extensions of time, uh, prolongation expenses, disruption expenses, Whatever the contract or doesn't, whatever the contract doesn't allow, uh, will be will be an issue. So um, that that's my take on it. Um, I, I don't know. What's your view? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a, I think that's a good, um, a good analysis, James. I mean, I think that it, it depends. I suppose I should caveat that with it depends a little bit where we go in the next few months. Um, obviously, some regions in the world are continuing. I think Brazil is, you know, still very much on the uptick, it would seem, with COVID. But uh, many other parts, luckily at the moment, it seems, you know, the UK, Europe, 
Asia, there seems to be a degree of control over COVID. And I think if we if we are in a situation where things, if I can put it this way loosely, continue to improve, and we see a, a gradual return to a, a relatively normal um, life, which you know allows these projects, most of which um, are up and running again, to continue, I, I agree with you. Um, I suppose one ought to just recognize that if contrary to that, you know, sincere hope, we find ourselves in, in a significantly worse position such that, I mean, if, for example, we had a, another lockdown, if there were lockdowns for a considerable chunk of time, then I think um, we're looking at a, a different, uh, potentially a, a different analysis, a different scenario. But assuming we, we proceed as it looks, we now will. Um, I agree with you. I think that um, the greater ramifications or the greater generators of disputes will likely be um, the uh, financial impact, um, which uh, the broader economic uh, downturn is likely to have. Um, and I think it's playing out already a little bit in that, in a similar way, um, aside from, as you say, advising clients, um, on force majeure, change of law provisions, etc. One of the things I've noticed is that a number of the projects that have come across um, my desk, um, not all by any means, but some, um, are projects where there are clearly other challenges anyway. And COVID isn't the only challenge. Um, and so I think the one of the sort of ramifications is that we will see projects that um, are likely to be struggling in any event, either for other reasons or because of some of the economic challenges uh, in the long term. Um, we will see disputes coming out of those type of projects. And in the, you know, in the larger international sphere, um, one can well see how that might, might play out. Um, I guess it also depends on, just you know, thinking this through, it depends a little bit, for example, um, on low interest rates. I mean, you know, assuming that that continues, um, I think we will see more companies uh, who have um, the wherewithal to fight cases. I mean, one of the, the challenges is obviously, I think there are a large number of fairly highly geared companies in the industry. If interest rates were to go up, um, if we were to be looking at a, a sort of looming global recession, uh, we might get into a situation where there was such a fallout that as sort of happened in the aftermath of 2008, for a while at least, the money, to put it in slightly crude terms, dried up. Um, so that would then, you know, that would, I think, make it more challenging for, for disputes, at least in the short to medium term. Um, but, I mean, on the positive, if government invests, not just our government, but if governments invest as they have promised to in infrastructure, um, then... Uh, that won't generate COVID-related disputes, but it might generate some COVID work, which in due course might generate some disputes. Um, I think the real question is whether there's going to be, you know, to put it fairly bluntly, enough money to make these cases worth fighting. And I think at the moment it's likely there will be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all which is at stake, really, isn't it? I mean, we know how much it costs to fight a case well and fully, and the question is whether the amounts at stake justify that investment. Um, my my guess is that some of the projects that are likely to go into to, to have difficulties may be in the energy space, oil and gas space, mm -hmm. given mm -hmm. the drop in oil price. Um, some of those projects will no longer be viable economically. And the question is, what do the employers, the owners on those projects do? Uh, do they de-scope projects? Do they terminate contracts? Do they renegotiate? Um, uh, and we saw this in 2014, 2015, when the oil price dropped again. We saw um, disputes arising in the offshore sector. Uh, yeah. And I just wonder if that's another sector which will suffer again uh, because of the drop in oil price, which is, of course, indirectly linked to, to COVID. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think... Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I'm just going to hand back to Olivia again. Uh, she's got a question for you about your role as chair chair of the bar. Okay. Yeah, um, I think one of the 
more interesting aspects um, of the Bar Council is that um, it represents all barristers, um, including barristers who specialise in fields that, of course, subject to very distinct pressures, um, you know, criminal barristers and family barristers. I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your experience of acting as chair of this fairly broad church. Yeah, it's, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's one of the, um, one of the sort of fascinating aspects about the job that you're, you know, you're representing um, a relatively small profession, but who um, practice in, in such a wide range of work and who have, in some ways, different interests, um, different paymasters. You know, if you're talking about a publicly funded barrister who's subject to uh, legal aid um, versus, you know, commercial barrister whose bulk of the work might be coming out of Asia. Um, but in a way, that's one of the things that makes it so interesting. And I would say that it, the, the job, which which it was what it is really for a year, um, requires many of the skills of my day job, but in a completely different context. And so you're looking really at advocacy. Um, you know, you're advocating to these barristers who are your members. You're advocating to the government um, in relation to the justice system in relation to legal aid fees, for example, you're advocating to regulators um, to stop them over-regulating the profession, and of course to the outside market. Um, so that's the first thing, advocacy. Secondly, strategy. It's all about you know, planning for the future of the profession and, and the organization, um, and um, figuring out you know, how to ensure that, that it stays together, that it recognizes the importance of sticking together as a profession. And then I'd say thirdly, judgment, you know, making those difficult calls, taking views as to which battles are worth fighting. Um, so I, it was a, it's an extremely interesting job. Um, and I would say that um, the takeaway I have from it about my profession um, is that on the whole, it recognizes it's stronger together, um, but you can never take that for granted. Um, and I suppose I would also say that I've never met so many different barristers from different regions and different practice areas, different age groups. Um, and the interesting thing for me was that, although, of course, it's a very diverse profession, actually, on the whole, um, barristers, you know, enjoy the same challenges. They, most of the people I spoke to, including, you know, some of the youngest joining the profession, um, would mention phrase, you know, advocacy, independence, challenge, you know, the excitement that that brings, um, the intellectual challenge. Um, and so I think when one actually breaks down what people do on a daily basis and, and why they do it, actually it is a surprisingly coherent profession. Um, it just doesn't always look like that from the outside. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's really interesting, to, um, particularly a point about um, despite the diversity of the question, I guess, the, the commonalities in terms of um, uh, the challenges and um, uh, the challenges that everyone faces. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask about, um, you've already mentioned launching the wellbeing portal during a time as chair, which sounds like it would be a very, it would have been a very useful resource. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit um, about what um, you hope to accomplish when you're first appointed as chair and um, some of the accomplishments uh, maybe that you are, you're proud of. I suppose in, in, in very simple terms, I hoped to leave the organization in a stronger place. And you know, one of the interesting things about leading, leading a profession and leading an, an organization that leads that profession um, is that uh, you actually need to look after the organization as well as the profession. And so you know, ensuring that the Bar Council was um, more transparent, more democratic, more diverse, financially um, you know, better able to look after itself, and that the profession um, maintained that cohesion that we've just been talking about. Um, so I'd say those were um, in very simple terms, and you know, I could, I could uh, talk at length, but I think in simple terms, that, that's really what I was hoping to achieve. Um, and I think in many ways, um, we made you know good progress on those um, on those goals. Um, I guess if you ask me, what what do I you know, what would I point out in terms of the year 2016? Um, I think the, the, the whole team, by which I mean the Bar Council, which is, you know, an elected body of about 100 plus uh, barristers, achieved a lot. 
um, together with the staff at the Bar Council in terms of making the organization more cohesive, more responsive to the profession. But a lot of that work was done behind the scenes. Um, and I think the issues that I would identify are really um, some of the public ones. And so, for example, the ones that stick out to me in many ways are uh, leading the profession you know, around the time, if you remember, of the um, litigation um, around Brexit, the attacks on the judiciary, um, and so leading the profession in terms of speaking out uh, and effectively defending the judicial system and our justice system, recognizing the importance of that um, and speaking out and recognizing the need to actually draw a marker and to make that point. Um, and so we took a number of strategic steps over a couple of days, um, which led us really, I think, to lead that debate and to play an important role in getting the, um, the then Lord Chancellor to finally speak out uh, in support of the judiciary. Uh, that, I think, was an important issue and one that was not just incredibly important because of the underlying aspect, in other words, um, the need to ensure that um, politicians and society more broadly understands how our justice system works and why that matters to society. Um, but with hindsight, it was also important, I think, in terms of the profession seeing its professional body um, take that leading role and, and speak out on these issues that actually, again, affected all, you know, all our members were interested in that. So that's one. Um, I think the other one I would um, sort of identify um, is uh, leading some of the discussion around regulatory reform. Um, not always the most interesting topic to uh, practicing lawyers, barristers, and solicitors, but it's, a, I think, a constant, um, a, a, a constant for a representative body such as the Bar Council. And uh, I mean, one of the things that really sort of sticks in my mind is back in 2016, the um, Legal Services Board uh, were putting forward various proposals at, at that time looking to create a single regulator. Uh, and one of the things that really struck me was that um, the uh, first report which they produced took issue with uh, the objectives of the Legal Services Act 2007. Um, which encouraged an independent, strong, diverse, and effective legal profession. And uh, the LSB um, took issue with this, and they thought that that was a, a problematic objective um, and um, suggested it didn't stem from the fundamental justification for sector-specific regulation uh, and um, went on to do a review of some of the UK's largest regulators, including Ofwat, which, as you know, regulates waters and sewers. And uh, they concluded that there were no other regulators which had objectives relating to the strength of their regulated sector. And I remember um, it was quite an important moment in a sense because, it, to, to my mind, it, it showed um, it showed really quite a shocking approach because, in essence, the um, legal services regulator was comparing uh, legal professionals, solicitors and barristers, among others. Um, as uh, compared to the task of sewage regulation. And when you start to think what that means um, in terms of attitude, you know, appreciation, approach. Um, and so, you know, coming, I think, away from that, um, I got quite involved in, and uh, as a body, the Bar Council got quite involved in uh, two things. One, obviously, leading that discussion on regulatory reform and, and standing up for the profession. But secondly, um, this, this, I would probably call it fight on regulation, combined with what we saw happening to the judiciary around Brexit, led us really to recognize that, that we need, as lawyers, to constantly educate, promote that we're professionals, that we're part of the justice system, why the justice system is important to society, things that we take for granted, um, but that you realize, actually, um, you can't take for granted. Um, and at a very basic level, um, we, you know, individually and through um, our professional organizations, through our through firms and chambers, um, need to think about constantly reinforcing so that we aren't just um, relegated to, you know, um, the equivalent of Ofwat. <laughs> Uh, nothing, I have nothing against off that, but there's no doubt that what we do and the role that we play is, is completely different. 
Um, so yeah, so I would, I would say those two, those two issues that turned out to be interrelated and the leadership role um, I sort of took on on the position that we, you know, that we as an org, as a profession took um, are probably two of the things I, you know, look back on and think, yeah, that was the right thing to do. I just wondered what you saw as the biggest issues affecting the modern bar and how you're addressing those in your role as head of Atkin Chambers. Yeah, I think it's quite a wide ranging question. I think it's, you know, invariably every chambers has has different challenges. I think broadly speaking, one of its, I don't know if I'd say issue or challenge, but and yet, you know, for us as an organization, we always need to make sure that we have an eye on where the work is coming from, how we're going to do it, you know, looking for opportunities. Um, so I suppose it's, you know, it's not sitting back and saying, oh, we've had a really good year, um, either individually or as a chambers, um, and we can take our eye off the ball. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's ensuring that we, um, ensuring that we are uh, getting a good mix of work and that we're not overly exposed to a market or a client or a, you know, so that we have a broad base of high quality work, I suppose, is, is an, an, an everyday um, issue. Secondly, I would probably say ensuring training, particularly of the junior bar. I mean, obviously, all of us, you know, need to do continuing education, but I think making sure, you know, recognizing our responsibilities as as a chambers and as an organisation to ensuring that um, that our junior barristers um, get a good mix of work, um, you know, that they don't disappear into one large, exciting and remunerative case, but don't get enough experience doing their own work or doing their own advocacy. Um, and it's that balance that's so important, I think, particularly in the early years. You know, when you when you learn your skills, um, you can make your you can make you know you can you can choose if you really just want to do big international work or if you you know you want to do more advisory work. But but for us, I think making sure that when they start out, um, they're getting enough um, enough of a mix of work. You know, working with different solicitors, working in different regions. Um, working on international work as well as domestic cases, so that they're getting that exposure that allows them to, to hone to hone those skills is, uh, I think, definitely important. And I suppose I would say, thirdly, you know, making sure going forward um, that we remain cohesive. I mean, I've always one of the things I've enjoyed about Chambers from from when I started way back is that it's, um, you know, we we have a, a clear vision. We didn't choose to get as big as as some of the other commercial sets, we've always focused on, you know, quality. We want to make sure that that our members have the quality um, that really marks them out. Um, and secondly, that that they're able to attract that work, but that we're also cohesive and friendly. And for, for my money, you know, it's that combination that's quite important. Um, and again, it's it's making sure that you don't take that for granted. Um, on either side, you know, either making sure that you continue to attract. Um, you know the best kids as pupils, um, and that you train them up, um, but also making sure that you you keep your chambers and everyone who works in that building um, recognizing we're all independent and self-employed, but nonetheless working together um, as a cohesive group to the extent that we need to, as opposed to on individual cases. Um, and I suppose fourthly, making sure. You know, you have good support teams. So making sure we have an outstanding clerks team um, and the people who work with them, and that's important, particularly for the bar being self-employed. You know, we're we're interested in doing the work, being in court. Yeah, it's an interesting role being a head of chambers. I think because um, when you're a, if you're a partner in a law firm or a, particularly if you're in a management role, you you are running a business. That is what you're running. There's, there's no doubt about it. When um, when you're running, when you're head of chambers, you are running a, a business in, in a sense. You have the, the infrastructure, the building, the clerks, the other members of the team. The the, the people who generate the revenue are self-employed, um, as you say. So it's quite a it's a sort of hybrid role in that sense. Um, I think, uh, which probably makes it in some respects. A more challenging role. You have a number of different hats to wear, um, which perhaps um, 
when you're managing a law firm or running a part of a law firm, it's a little bit more clear about what, what your objectives are. Um, so so I, I, in some respects, I, I can see it could be quite a challenging job. I'm sure very, very satisfying as well, but, but it, has, it, has, it has different challenges. I think you're. I think you've 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 nailed it. If I if I can put it, if I can say that. I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that it is inevitable, given you know, given the way the bar organises itself, and given that we are you know we're 51 self-employed practitioners, um, and although we're very collegiate and uh, we definitely come together as a chambers, there's no doubt that we are um, self-employed and we have 51 businesses really under that one hat, um, and. Yeah, so my role is definitely different from that of uh, effectively a senior partner. One of the issues um, which must be uh, very relevant to you, I assume, as head of chambers, but also which something I assume you would have considered in your previous capacity as chairman of the Bar Council, um, is, is I guess the degree to which minorities are actually represented in the profession. Uh, so you've obviously achieved a very high profile position. Uh, I, I wonder what you sense you think there's still really significant barriers um, to both entry and progression for women at the bar? Yeah, I think um, I think that's a good question. Um, and I, in terms of entry, you know, I genuinely believe that, um, uh, that there are very few barriers. I, I mean, the, the, the stats certainly um, support that. I think well over 10 years we've we've had a 50-50, sometimes slightly more than 50, sometimes slightly less than 50% intake. I mean, if we're talking specifically um, around women as opposed to interleaving other issues to do with um, social mobility, etc. But I think intake um, is um, is not where we find challenges. Um, I think there remain some challenges around progression. I mean, it's um, it's improved fantastically there's no doubt about that um, I mean I was very fortunate actually when I started my first pupillage I did in a set of chambers uh, back in um, 1992 that had a female head of chambers and uh, female silks which a mixed commercial set which was relatively unheard of in those days and um, I'm pleased to say that you know we've come forward leaps and bounds um, but the stats on at the senior end um, undoubtedly suggest that there are still issues and I know that certainly all the work the Bar Council has done um, suggests that there remain issues around um, women leaving the profession um, probably in the middle of their career um, and uh, challenges that are probably reflected in society around sort of childcare responsibilities. Uh, I mean the Bar Council has done a huge amount in that area to try and provide support, mentoring, um, I think Chambers has actually been very lucky. I mean, when, when I look at, um, you know, the women in Chambers, we have a, a really healthy, um, if I can put it that way, um, you know, career progression for women in Chambers. Um, and, you know, we haven't um, seen that um, loss of women as they hit their middle career. In fact, you know, our women are going right through taking silk. Um, uh, I suppose one of the things that really struck me, though, when I was chairman of the bar, just wrapping sort of back to the beginning, is that when I started out, there weren't really, well, there were, but I guess I wasn't really aware of them. There weren't many role models, and um, my role models were men. You know, they were the best barristers in my particular chambers and who I learned from and who, you know, looked after me and mentored me. Um, and I think what has changed in a way is that there's a much greater demand in society today for role models. And I certainly noticed that um, when I was chair of the bar, that you know, I'd go and speak at an event and people would come and talk to me afterwards, um, students, uh, young lawyers, um, who thought it was important uh, not just to have that diversity, but if I can put it this way, to have that diversity um, visible and leading on issues, um, which I thought was interesting. And, you know, I, I suppose I learned from that um, the responsibility that, that one has. Um, and so I think coming back to your question, um, are there barriers? I don't think there there are barriers in in the real sense of that word, but I think there is still work to be done to ensure um, that the profession um, doesn't lose women midway through their career. And the stats around that, if not in the construction bar, but more generally, are still concerning. 
that's really interesting to hear you um, to hear your insights on that. Um, I, I suppose um, one of the other um, aspects, of course, of representation in the profession is is sort of BAME representation, and I guess um, in particular, sort of I guess the uh, the increasing attention around uh, black representation um, in the legal profession. And I wonder if you had any views or, or thoughts about what more we could do generally to improve um, BAME representation, uh, both at the bar, but also the legal profession generally. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a, you know, it's obviously again, really topical uh, question. And uh, one, you know, one that occupied, won't surprise you, quite a chunk of my time when I was chair of the bar. Um, and I think it's it's a question that we have to ask ourselves at a number of different levels. Um, it's it's important to ensure um, access um, to the profession. Um, it's important to ensure progression within the profession, and it's important to ensure leadership within the profession. Um, I mean, the statistics suggest that. Um, and I'm always a little skeptical because, you know, I think statistics have a value, but they're not the be all and end all, suggests that entry uh, level uh, and um, uh, progression are, the stats are, are relatively, relatively good, um, not as good as they need to be, but there continue to be real challenges around uh, progression to the more senior end, silk uh, applications, judicial applications. Um, and I think there's a real issue around leadership. And certainly, you know, I was very conscious that, um, I mean, looking at the Bar Council when I was chair, I was very conscious that actually there were quite a, lot of, a large number of women represented in this elected body, which was representing the profession. But when you're looking um, at minority representation um, or black representation specifically, um, it was very low and that that is i think a, a problem for an organization that is representing a profession and so i think that is something which the profession needs to look at more um, i know the bar council is and i think that chambers and um, law firms need to work at um, it's ensuring i think i think it's across the, the board i mean i you know i think it's about um looking at a daily basis at you know who you're working with who your teams are you know so within within a firm structure or or chambers making sure that everyone's being given equal opportunities making sure that um you know issues around implicit bias aren't having um you know aren't playing a role there um and i also think we need we need to improve our image i mean if you look at the stats around um bame or black representation um they're certainly um, much less good at the commercial bar broadly, um, I, I believe, um, although the stats are, you know, again, they're not that uh, available, but my, my understanding is much less, um, the stats are much less good than if you're looking at the bar as a whole. And so you need to ask yourself, or we need to ask ourselves as practice areas, what do we need to do to make sure um, that we're attracting the best of a generation and that we're making, you know, that we're actually appealing to people and not um, representing uh, an atmosphere or a business that might suggest it's not welcoming. So I think a lot of it is about perception. It's about opportunity. Um, I think it's a problem that is bigger than an individual chambers or firm. I think it's about working together. It's probably um, about making sure we think about this and do things at every stage. So it's getting into schools, you know, getting into schools and getting people, um, getting schools to think about the profession and understanding the profession um, and understanding the opportunities that are out there. And I mean, that issue, of course, goes beyond BME and into social mobility. Um, broadening the footprint, um, because one of the, I think one of the biggest challenges at the moment is certainly um, around um, information that people have about the professions and knowing how to access the profession. Um, and I think that, you know, that starts to interleave with some of the other challenges around diversity. So I think it's, yeah, finding a way whereby we as society are able to offer those opportunities. Um, and it's not easy. I mean, back in 2016, I remember David Lamy MP, 
producer was working on. I had a number of meetings with them. Was producing a big report, um, you know, on on some of these issues to do with black representation in the profession and in the justice system more broadly. I mean, his report was much broader. Um, but there's no doubt that um, you know that we as a profession need to ask ourselves these questions. I think the answers are are much harder. Yeah, I 100% agree with that, um, and I think particularly what you said before about, um, I guess, I guess the needs um, for the commercial part and also, the, I guess, commercial law firms to do additional uh, soul searching. Um, I think um, particularly around maybe issues of social mobility and, and maybe recognizing that um, there are a lot of inequalities that sort of um, work together in terms of social mobility and gender um, and ethnicity. I guess it's it's on me to say thank you so much for joining us, telling me it's been really fascinating. Thank you so much for giving your time um, and and for giving such full answers and and so much interesting information. I mean, it's been it's been fascinating. Thank you very much. It's much Pleasure. appreciated. Thank you so much.